Hello and welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Opportunity for people to ask questions about their practice, about Buddhist practice, and the theory behind Buddhist practice, mindfulness practice. Specifically, this session is for questions that have relevance to your own practice not intellectual curiosity or theoretical knowledge or philosophy, something that is of practical importance to you as a meditator, as a Buddhist, as a human, as a being, as a person, a being stuck in samsara, subject to suffering, stress, So the first 15 minutes will be for collecting questions. As people show up and post their questions, you can post questions in the chat anytime. For the first 15 minutes, we will just practice silent meditation in order for the questions to come in and to be collected and also for us to cultivate the clarity of mind necessary to appreciate the Buddha's teaching. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour, as usual, to answer questions.
Okay, that's 15 minutes and we're back. So from here on, we would ask that the chat be reserved only for more questions. So if you have questions, post them. If you don't have questions, just sit back and listen. Stay mindful. To further support my mindfulness meditation practice, can I sleep on my side as the Buddha did for lying meditation? I am not ready for sleeping upright, but I would like to expand my practice of the eight precepts if this can help my mindfulness overall. Well, first off, I would be cautious about trying to help your mindfulness. That can be a sort of bad habit of trying to somehow find a way to make it better. Just you have to be careful about that because it can be uh, about control, right? And it can be about not acknowledging your lack of control, and it can lead to lead you away from letting go. So try not to be too focused on finding ways to make your mindfulness better in that way. You can phrase it and and look at it in terms of removing hindrances when you see things that are clearly obstructing your practice. Um, as far as sleeping on your side, um, if you don't, if your body isn't the same shape as the Buddha, it might be difficult. Um, you have to, I think, recognize that the Buddha was able to because of his uh, the shape of his body, the, the his legs. Some people are bow-legged, some people are whatever the opposite of bow-legged is. Um, but lying meditation is certainly a valid meditation. Uh, what I would, uh, what I would uh, recommend is that you try to take up the practice of doing lying meditation until you fall asleep rather than going to sleep. So don't ever lie down with the thought that you're going to sleep. Lie down with the thought that you're going to do lying meditation. And when you fall asleep, you fall asleep. You can also make a determination for when you're going to wake up. Those kinds of things are valuable. I was at a children's dance competition, unaccompanied, with one hour waiting time before the start. How to be mindful and what to note while waiting at my seat. I did not know where to look without appearing inappropriate. For example, closing my eyes, looking down at the floor. There were many people as well as lights and advertisements flashing from different directions. Well, there's nothing special about that. You can just note. Um, note uh, outside of formal meditation, we recommend noting the postures of the body and the senses. So seeing and hearing would be appropriate. You can note your reactions, liking, disliking sort of thing. Why should we be more precise than noting feeling? Why not feeling feeling instead of rising falling? It's more um, more accurate. And as a well, yeah. So, what does the precision do for you? It it leads to a sharper, a greater sharpness of mind. 
feeling is much is is quite likely to lead to distraction boredom as the mind loses its its sharpness because it's so repetitive and it's lazy uh, that you 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 would be quite likely to fall into not actually uh, being mindful not actually recognizing the experience as a feeling and just using the word i mean it's not wrong it's not that it's wrong practice it's just far inferior from actually noting something more uh, accurate like if you feel tension in the body you would note tense if you feel hot you would note hot or cold you would note cold is it are they all just feelings yes technically they are all just feelings so that's not wrong but it's it's not nearly as valuable why would you want to just note feeling for everything i think one reason might be because of it's easier and easy is really not the direction we want to be headed we want to challenge ourselves now that being said it doesn't mean that you have to be so precise i mean you should be precise but there's a it's easy to mistake uh, extrapolation for precision where you would say thinking about the past now that's extrapolation thinking is just thinking the experience is not of the past that's your interpretation of it you're actually just thinking that you say it's for example of the past is because you associate it with something that happened in the past but the thought is still a thinking in the present so that you wouldn't want to go too far in that direction it's not too far you just you cross a line, you're no longer being precise, you're now extrapolating. I want to get in better physical shape, but I crave a lot of junk food and sweets. How do I manage my cravings? It seems like just noting craving doesn't work. Well, noting craving isn't for removing the craving, it's for helping you understand and become more familiar with for in specifically the craving. But you also have to become more familiar with the happiness, the pleasure that comes from the taste of junk food, the, the, the uh, thinking about it, the seeing it, and the feeling of, of eating it and that sort of thing. You just have to be generally more mindful. And how it works is not to suddenly get rid of the craving, but to help you see the stress and suffering associated with craving things and needing things and trying to always get what you want. So don't think of it as not working. Think of it as leading to greater clarity, mindfulness. It's a long process. Craving is something that takes a long time and a lot of work to get rid of. It's not the first thing to go in the practice. The first thing to go is wrong view. So a misunderstanding that somehow it's it's me or mine, and that it's I, and that somehow there's some actual inherent goodness in chasing after sensual pleasure, those kinds of things. Those kinds of wrong views are eradicated. But it doesn't mean that you stop liking things or wanting things. That takes time. Is something you have to work at and gain greater clarity and better perspective. It's a long process. I mean, if you think about it, if you look at it, um, 
craving for junk food is really low on the list of things that are causing you stress and suffering. There's much worse things like killing, stealing, lying, cheating. Any any in, uh, inclination to perform any of these things is far more dire and, and greater concern. Hurting other people, lying, you know, manipulating others, um, any kind of strong addiction you might have or strong frustration, aversion, uh, fear, or worry, the really strong ones. Uh, it's really going to take a lot of work to get rid of more subtle ones like craving for junk food. Uh, you might also want to note the wanting to get in better physical shape because that wanting leads to stress when you can't get what you want and feeling bad, the disliking of your physical shape and that sort of thing. I mean, I would recommend if you have a, for this in particular, if you have a chance, find a, a way to do an intensive meditation course. And you can see how eating only once a day makes you feel can help to change your your general attitude around food and help you need to eat less, curb your habit. Sometimes there is very strong hatred towards my body, and it becomes nearly impossible to not act on these feelings of anger by doing harmful things to myself. How can I get out of this cycle? Well, through mindfulness, it certainly will allow you to free yourself from it. It just takes work and practice. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. If you have, I don't know if you've done our at-home meditation course. Those are two places to start. If you've done the at-home course, then maybe try to do an intensive course. But the at-home course should do quite a bit if you haven't done it. It should be quite a good support for helping you at least mitigate these feelings or put them in perspective. The key is not to react to the feelings. Hatred toward yourself is just hatred. It's just a feeling, and it's terrible and feels awful. But we react to that, and we sn it snowballs. We make more out of things than they actually are. Anger is just a feeling, and no matter how strong it is, no matter how strong the anger might become, it's still just anger. It doesn't actually say anything. It never gets too strong. It just gets strong, and then it goes away. Comes back, goes away, comes back, goes away. But when you are afraid of it, or you are averse to the anger, then it gets worse, and then it causes real problems. Buddha described it as untangling the tangle. We're all tied up in knots, and so we make issues out of issues, and we turn problems. We think of problems as problems. We pile up the problems. For an activity involving pleasure, can we separate enjoyment in the moment from liking as in? Can I still enjoy an activity without liking or compartmentalizing and attaching to it? So words are slippery and words can allow you anything. Uh, language allows you to enjoy without liking. But reality doesn't have that luxury. Reality only admits of certain reality, certain states of mind. And so words don't have any meaning or, or any weight. They don't have any influence on reality. Reality is that you either uh, react to something or you don't react to it. Either you see it simply as an experience 
or you have some sort of judgment or extrapolation of it. Basically, you extrapolate it or you don't. One way of extrapolating on experiences is to like them. One Another way is to dislike them. These are real. This is really a part of experience. It can happen. Enjoyment is just a word that we use. Uh, a person, we say, is enjoying things. But it, is there an experience of enjoyment? What is that experience? It's a probably a... a um, uh, a muddling of the muddying of the waters or a muddling of the the actual realities between the pleasure of something and the liking of that pleasure so pleasure is a part of experience pleasure is real it actually arises and it's possible to have pleasure without liking it but enjoyment isn't actually real there's no part of reality that we can call enjoyment it's just a description we have of things i was enjoying that experience and the reality of it is liking. I mean, anyone who says they're enjoying something, it's it, it, there really is no room for them to wiggle out of saying they they of admitting that they like it. You wouldn't enjoy something that you don't like, or you wouldn't enjoy something that you yeah that you don't like, and not that you dislike, but that you have no liking for. If you have no liking for something, there would be no enjoyment of it. That being said, you can experience pleasure without any liking of it. Uh, the, the the key is that through clarity and mindfulness, you start to see that the pleasure is not actually that beneficial. And and in terms of states of mind, there are far better ones. Peace is a far more uh, beneficial, subtle, uh, refined state than pleasure. But in, in terms of mindfulness, the key is to just see the pleasure as pleasure. It's not to get rid of it, but also to be very vigilant for when there's liking or disliking of something because those are habit-forming and they cause serious problems. They, they keep us caught up in the rounds of suffering, keep us caught up in disappointment and expectation, keep us fixated on the past and the future keep us vulnerable to loss, change. They really are the, the real cause of all of the stress and suffering in our lives. In your booklet, you advised entertainment should be in moderation. Is sexual activity in moderation okay too? Yes. Sexual activity, as long as it's not, um, as long as it's not harmful in any way, in terms of breaking a commitment, um, breaking people's expectations, reasonable expectations, or agreed upon expectations. I mean, I'm obviously talking about marriage. If you're, if you have extramarital relations, when there's an expectation in your marriage that you've agreed upon to not engage in that. Then you're, you could say it's harmful. Uh, of course, sexual assault, um, even uh, a person over 18 or an adult having sexual or romantic relations with someone underage, that's, in, that's unethical. Those sorts of things, things that are harmful, manipulative, and so on. Now, sexual activity, entertainment, these are unwholesome. It's important to understand. So Buddhism doesn't 
praise them or even accept them as being a part of a, a healthy lifestyle. They're just understood to be something that lay people are by and far unable to let go of. They are not um, antithetical to the path. I think I mentioned that in the booklet, that there are certain things that are antithetical, killing, stealing, lying, cheating, drugs and alcohol. These are going to set you back. Uh, sexual activity, entertainment, these things are only going to hinder you. So they'll make, you pra make your practice and your progress go slower. So if you're okay with that, or even if you're not, um, engaging in these things is probably par for the course. It's not something you should feel terrible about. You should appreciate that there is the, the Buddha taught, taught these things, taught letting go of, well, not just these things, but letting go of everything. And these things are caught up in clinging and craving and liking and wanting. And so ultimately they're going to be unsatisfying, but don't beat yourself up over them. They don't, they don't prevent you from, pract from uh, practicing a spiritual life. I lost someone I loved a year ago, and I turned to meditation and soon went away from meditation when things got better. I realized that I only turned to meditation when I'm going through a lot of suffering. How can I make meditation a regular habit without it being subject to condition? Hmm. Uh, just practice uh, goodness, really. Do good deeds to help yourself get a better perspective on things. It's just a sign that you have lack of perfections, that you're, you're, you're mired in bad habits and bad inclinations and bad intentions, laziness, con uh, complacency, and so on. It's very common. So it, it's, it's certainly reasonable that people turn to meditation as a means to freeing them for suf from suffering when they experience great suffering. The challenge is to gain greater clarity so that you're able to see the rest of the suffering that's more subtle, not nearly as glaring and obvious. That's the challenge. Now, it's harder. Some people are unable to see any reason to make themselves better, to better themselves, to train themselves until it's dire, until they're dying. I mean, some people never do, and they just die, and they could be on their deathbed, and they would be completely vehemently against any uh, improvement on their, self-improvement on their part. Some people it takes dire circumstances, some people it takes something threatening, for others it takes something uh, hinting at a threat so you can be um, there can be a, a potential for problems a real the realization that suffering could come to you and for some they're able to appreciate the nature of suffering in in all experiences and how clinging is just going to always lead to stress and suffering it's just about development for some people it can take lifetimes before they're able to free themselves from suffering 
Feathers just never get there, wandering in samsara for eternity. Which one are you going to be? One other thing, I guess a couple of more things. I mean, you can study, associate yourself with good people. A lot of the questions like this are questions about how to better yourself. You, you have to remember the, the, the fundamentals of the holy life. One is study and, and learning, but the other is just association, associating with good people. Find groups and communities, set up groups, join groups, help out with groups that are inclined in, in, towards the Buddha's teaching. Help, help to make an experience where people are encouraged to practice mindfulness. To practice mindfulness in daily life, what is the guiding principle for where one puts attention? Is breath always the anchor? with awareness on other sensations as they arise, exist, then pass away? So in daily life, the anchor we recommend is more the body in general, the postures of the body, walking, standing, sitting, and lying. Uh, another one similar is the senses, so seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. That pretty much covers most of the things you're going to experience, then you can also be mindful of the hindrances, of course. But yeah, in daily life, the postures of the body are probably the best for a beginner. I don't know if you read our booklet. I think it mentions that in the booklet. Every time I've tried to meditate, I immediately get restless and can't focus on the meditation. I start thinking about stuff I have to do, etc. Any recommendations for people with ADHD? Well, I do rec I do recommend to try and loosen the hold that labels have on you. Try not try to not focus too much on calling yourself someone with ADHD, like calling it ADHD, because that's an extrapolation. And it's important from a Buddhist perspective because of how well of how important perspective is. It's important that you are focusing on what's really there. ADHD is not a thing that's really there. It's just a description of the things that are there in general. And as a generalization, it doesn't really um, accurately describe the situation, the reality. So the second, the, the second part, or the part that you you actually mention about what happens, is is much more valuable. I start thinking about things I have to do, etc. So that is real. That is actually happening. The thinking arises, uh, and so the perspective you want is not to see it as I am thinking, but think of it as thinking, uh, as a thought that arises. Thoughts arise. Thoughts cease. And to not look at it as a problem. The idea of mindfulness is not to stop thinking, it's to be mindful of the thinking, to appreciate and understand and be familiar with what it's like to think, gain a better perspective on your thoughts. And emotions, like restlessness. Why do you feel restless? Is there liking, disliking? There can be wanting or craving and that sort of thing. All of these things are interesting and none of them are really going to be described by ADHD. 
So I don't know if you read our booklet, um, maybe try that, but but be clear that meditation's meant to be a struggle, a challenge. It's meant to take you out of your comfort zone. So it will do that. It will be hard for you, it will be uncomfortable. But it's that discomfort that forces you to change, makes you see the the reasons why you're uncomfortable. Your dissatisfaction, your your desires and attachments and expectations and all that, and your reactions and habits. Is it okay to utilize craving and desire to motivate oneself? I sometimes feel that the potential penalty of suffering is still worth the boost in energy and action. In a worldly sense, maybe, sure, but it's it, craving and such are, are, are habit forming. And so you're setting yourself up for stress and suffering as a result. If you want to feel energy and action and so on, I mean, it just becomes habit-forming and expectations leads to expectations, leads to delusion as well because you think you're in control. It's not going to work out in the long term. It just gets you caught up in the world. It's a reinforcing of attachment. So in a worldly sense, that's of course necessary to do many things. Without the craving and desire, you wouldn't do them in the first place. The thing about mindfulness is it shows you how stressful and tiresome and bothersome that is. And it leads you to let go of it. You don't have to um, give up your desires. You just have to see them clearly. The giving up is happens by itself because you just see them as not worth the effort without any real value or satisfaction. When I am around a girl that I love in my class, I go crazy and lose my mindfulness. If I confess my love to her, there's a high chance her parents would punish me. I am from India. What should I do? Uh, well, don't try not to be around her too much. It's probably, you know, do some practicing on your own to uh, try to mitigate that. Love is a funny thing, huh? It's uh, often related to both past life experiences and also uh, past life habits. So it may not be her that you knew in a past life, but she can remind you. There can be a very strong, like just unreasonably strong attachment. But it's not really love. There's, I mean, that word is so meaningless anyway it's just attachment it's desire really so desire is something you want to learn about and you also want to try and uh, address the views around it because confessing your love to her is probably not the probably not the answer 
in the first place, regardless of whether your parents punish you. Them punishing you is not the most important thing. What's important is that you find happiness and satisfaction. And you don't find satisfaction from clinging. That girl is going to get old, sick, and die. So are you. Um, she's going to do things that disappoint you and upset you, and you're going to do things that upset and disappoint her. Your, your expectations are not going to be met. The more you crave for something, the more you're going to require it, and the more disappointed you're going to be when you don't get it. When she leaves, if she leaves, when she dies, you'll go through great law, great suffering from loss. And you've done this lifetime after lifetime. This is something you've done every lifetime. Every lifetime, again and again and again. It never ends well. It never ends in anything meaningful. Try and find peace and happiness. You deserve to be happy and find peace. And you won't get it from craving for things. I feel it's very difficult to practice mindfulness all day without giving in to craving. It seems to not improve. What can support my practice? Well, struggle through it. Don't be discouraged by how hard it is. Don't give up thinking it's too hard because you are gaining benefit from struggling. Remember, part of meditation is the struggle. It's not the the trying to force yourself, but it's the wrestling with this, grappling with this uh, desire, bad habits, doubts even about the practice. I mean, really feeling the nature of these things. And if you have this experience that you're talking about, the difficulty and trying and failing and trying and failing, having that experience repeatedly gives you better perspective, helps you see how how... Uh, unsatisfying it is to give in to your craving. So on on the first level, just as a sort of view or or perspective, try not to see it as a failure when you struggle. But as to your question, what can support? You really do have to do some, put some, um, not effort. Effort isn't the point, but you have to actually make some commitment. So if you haven't done our at-home course, we recommend that's a good place to start. If you've done that, once you've done that, to do an intensive course. Go away, take some time, and get a really real good foundation in the practice. And you'll find it much easier to do a daily practice if you've done that. I have heard a monk say, it is best to meditate with eyes open slightly as it reduces the images that will often come up in meditation when eyes are closed. Do you see any disadvantage with this? Uh, so the disadvantage of trying to remove anything is the desire to remove it, the aversion to it, to re the desire to re reduce something. So there's no reason whatsoever to think that images are a problem in this practice. Now, in other practices, it might be a disadvantage for some reason. Um, but I doubt it. I mean, opening your eyes is not going to make any better because you'll see things outside, right? But uh, certainly in this practice, 
that's not proper instruction because images are a valid object of mindfulness. Rupa Ramana. You can tell them it's Rupa Ramana. You can take it as a, an object of mindfulness. Just say seeing, seeing. So they are not a problem. When they are a problem is when you cling to them and you think there's something special about the images. And this is an example of clinging. Usually people cling to them as a good thing. They're excited about them, so they try to do whatever they can to make those images come or bright lights or colors or anything like that. And that's a problem because, of course, they're not mindful once they're trying to encourage them or liking them or excited about them or interested in them. But it's also clinging just the same to to be averse to them, to try and get rid of them. It's also delusion, thinking that you're somehow in control or trying to be in control. That's not the way of mindfulness. Mindfulness is dite dita matang bhavisati, let seeing just be seeing. Let what is seen just be what is seen. So yeah, there is a disadvantage to that for sure. Are there gains in life through meditation practice even if one does not become a sotabana in this lifetime? Absolutely. The, the biggest gain in the long term, probably based on what you're thinking, is the what we call upanisaya. Upanisaya is the inclination, and it carries through from life to life. So in your in your future lives, you might forget all the people and places you've been, all the details, but the inclination to meditate will be quite strong based on the practice you've done in this life even if you didn't become sotapanna. There's something called jula sotapanna, and it's not in the Tipitaka, but the commentary describes something called jula sotapanna, which is very ancient, and I don't know where the word was originally coined, but the Visuddhimagga talks about it. And if you just reach the second stage of knowledge of the 16, which is far before becoming a sotapanna, then you, you're called a jula sotapanna, which means... In, you've seen cause and effect, and you understand good and bad to the extent that you are able to free yourself from the four lower realms. You're not going to be reborn in hell or as an animal or as a ghost in the next life. Now, in future lives, there's no reassurance, but for, for this life, your uh, mindfulness is powerful enough to free you from from those things in 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 the next life. And so the power of that carries on. And in future lifetimes, when you meet with the Buddha's teaching, you'll be much better able to pick it up, much more inclined to pick it up. It's just something that's going to help you in, in lifetime after lifetime until you do actually become a Sotapanna. How do we go about letting go of very strong attachments to people we develop? So you don't go about letting go. This is a common misunderstanding uh, of meditation practice. Letting go is not a practice. Letting go is a result. So appreciate that first. You don't go about letting go. What do you go about doing? You don't even go about seeing clearly. Letting go comes from seeing clearly. Okay, there's an even intermediate step even there. Letting go comes about from seeing 
Oh, that's seeing clearly, I guess. Seeing clearly that the object is not worth clinging to. But but that comes from a general seeing clearly. When you see an object clearly, you have an understanding and appreciation that it's not worth clinging to. And it's not an intellectual thing. You really just see. You you know. You You observe that it's not worth clinging to. And that leads to letting go. That comes from seeing clearly seeing clearly the qualities of the object as being impermanent, suffering, and non-self. And that isn't even what you do. What you do is you practice mindfulness. You cultivate, or you could say simply you remind yourself. Seeing is seeing. Hearing is hearing. The word sati means to remember. So you cultivate this remembrance of things as they are. You remind yourself to, to keep your attention present, clear, and objective based on the object. So if you practice mindfulness, it leads to that chain of events, culminating in letting go and becoming free and finding peace. Why do I feel guilty if I miss my meditation? So um, in general, we're not interested in the why in this way. It's not where you should direct your attention. If you feel guilty, you should not feeling or guilty, guilty. Guilty is something like disliking or frustrated or that sort of thing. Try and figure out what the feeling is. Sad could be. Worried could be. Try and not the experience How do I be mindful when extremely sick and feel like I don't have the stamina to be mindful? You don't really need stamina to be mindful. Mindfulness is something you can do any time. It, it should help to give you better stamina, better energy. It's not easy when you're sick, but on the other hand, it can, it can be a great object for understanding. You may not be focused on the right thing to be mindful of. You should note the the drowsiness and tired that you might be describing as lack of stamina. If you feel tired or drowsy, note that. Note pain. Note disliking. Of course, it doesn't sickness doesn't automatically give you the opportunity to be mindful every moment. You're still going to be distracted and reactionary. But it is a good opportunity to train. And it's a struggle. What you're probably think feeling is that it's a struggle, it's a challenge, it's hard. And as well it should be. Anything worth doing is going to take you out of your comfort zone and force you to grow. Can we meditate on the image of the Buddha? Is it right meditation because seeing Buddha's image brings some calmness and tranquility on the mind? It's not a great object. It's not a great object because there's too much distraction. And it's only a good object at all in samatha meditation. But much better objects are plain white circles, something very simple. Because it's much easier for the mind to grasp the concept and uh, to become absorbed in it. So the, the calmness and tranquility can be good, for sure. 
but they can also be problematic as they can lead to attachment. You can like the calm feelings and tranquil feelings, and then you get stuck on them and you need them. You crave them, and you're disappointed when you don't get them. Ever since I committed to keep the eight precepts, when I change my mind and go back to just the five, I lose a lot of peace of mind and go back to indulgence. Is this a sign that I should go back to eight precepts? That does sound like a sign. Eight precepts isn't something you should be afraid of. Don't be feel worried that you're doing something wrong. There's nothing wrong with taking them. Just don't don't be don't feel like you have to keep them and if you stop keeping them you're doing something wrong either. Of course it's better to keep them. It's great if you can keep them. But uh, what you should think is sometimes you might not be able to keep them and as long as you're able to keep them for sure keep them. Whenever I begin to note the rising, I feel my jaw start to tense up. I note the tension, and it relaxes, but the tension always comes back. I find it distracting. Do you have any advice? Yeah, this is the same idea of not being... Uh not having expectations that it should be easy or relaxed, that meditation is going to be a challenge, and this is part of the challenge. So you find it distracting. That's uh, something you should note. Say to yourself, distracted. If you dislike it, say disliking. But, but kind of also um, appreciate that Mindfulness isn't about choosing your object so much as it is about noting the object that's in front of you. So the fact that it takes you away from the stomach isn't a problem. It's just a sign that you should then be noting the tension. So you'd say tense, tense. The fact that it comes back is valuable, shows you that it's not under your control, and it helps you see the dukkha of experience dukkha in the sense that it's incessant it has no relationship to your desire to your hopes and wants and needs reality is just uh, an incessant interference or or impingement on your your experience you're constantly being bombarded by these things and that helps you see the stress and suffering stress and suffering of, of clinging it teaches you to let go it's what leads to letting go and no longer being dependent on reality to be a certain way being flexible adaptable, and impervious to the changes of life. There's a lot of teaching going on there. You should appreciate the value of this lesson of being flexible and being able to adapt and being patient and not react and not judge. 
I've encountered entities during altered states. Are they generated by my mind? Will mindfulness make them go away? So are they generated as kind of a why question or it's an origin question, right? So we're not interested in that. You don't encounter entities, you encounter experiences. Entities are not a thing that exists. People, beings are not a thing that exists. And you can apply that to anything in meditation. Like if someone in the next room is talking, it's not a person talking, it's just sound. The experiences of the sound. So encountered entities, what does that mean? You hear something, you see something, you think something, a thought arises and you think it's not your thought, that sort of thing. Uh, there can be a feeling sometimes, a pressure. And I'm not saying that that you're just delusional. I'm saying that the experiences are very different from what you believe, what you describe them as being. If a person comes and poke you, it's not a person poking you. It's just a feeling of being poked. That's the experience. Of course, in that case, you might have to see why they're poking you because there could be some practical reason. But for beings and entities that aren't like your family members, um, you can probably just be mindful of the experiences. We're not trying to make things go away, just be mindful of them. They don't fall categorically outside of the realm of mindfulness, and that's all you have to be concerned with. What part of this is actually in the realm of reality, and note that, and watch it come, watch it go, and watch it come back and go again. Bhante, we've crossed the hour, and there are three more questions in the top tier. Do you have the time to answer more? Okay, let's go for it. Thank you. I've noticed that feelings arise without my effort, and it's not up to me, but sometimes I think, should I consciously cultivate an environment that arises wholesome feelings, or should I suffer through? You should suffer through. Cultivating an environment, um, I mean, suffering through is what, uh, well, most suffering through is not the best way to look at it, per se, but uh, I don't quite get what you're getting at here but by consciously cultivating an environment. Environments don't, mm, well, yes, I mean, there are practical aspects to environment that uh, relate to wholesomeness. For example, as I said, good, uh, good companionship, or if not, then solitude, getting away from people who are bad companions, who are, who are the cause of unwholesomeness. Um, so I guess I'm not sure what you mean by feelings, if you mean emotions, if you're referring to things we would call the hindrances. And those are things that you should be vigilant about. Um, so I, it's kind of vague. I don't really understand what you're talking about here. Uh, I, I guess you might be overthinking things and you might not want to think about this too hard. Just try and be mindful. But certainly circumstances can affect your practice, practically speaking, until you become skilled enough to suffer through them or face them without suffering is the real point. In Vipassana meditation, there is always a surge of emotions within the body on a daily basis. I observe it, and it goes then comes back over and over. What to do from here? 
When people say in vipassana meditation, I always think they might be talking about a different tradition. We don't generally, I mean, we do, but what we talk, we call this satipatthana vipassana. So it might be clearer to me if you were actually to to mention that, so I can understand, or or better yet, even say in 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 this meditation or something like that, because uh, we do get people talking about this from another tradition. But let's assume you're practicing in our tradition. I mean, I think you would know what to do, uh, what to do. Although, yeah, there isn't anything special you need to do. Assuming that you're practicing in our tradition, you've read our booklet, maybe even done the at-home course, maybe you've even done an intensive course in this tradition, then you would just do what you've always done. You just note it. And again, this going and coming back, it's a part of the familiarity that you're going to gain. It's not necessarily the only sign, only a sign of progress when things don't come back. It's a sign of progress when you start to realize that things keep coming back. And you realize that that your expectations that things would never come back, that things would get better, is just craving, it's just desire, and it's unreasonable. It's obviously out of touch with reality. And so rather than have these expectations, you start to just take things as they come. Because the truth is nothing ever comes back. You only associate what's happening this time with something that happened before. And that's on you. That's an extrapolation. Reality is only one thing here and now. The one thing that is happening right now, that's all that's real. It doesn't have any relationship um, ostensibly. Like on the face of it, it has no relationship to anything else. It just is what it is. It arises and ceases. And that's valuable. That helps you to let go, to stop making these uh, extrapolations and say, oh, not this again. right? But until that time, you the realization that things are n- not amenable to your expectations helps get you there, helps you to be less expectant, expecting things to be like this or that or being frustrated when they're like this or that or so on. I've been sick with a condition and stuck in my house for a year. I'm someone who still lives a normal Western life, and I have many attachments. How much would you recommend I meditate? As much as you can comfortably. You don't want to force yourself to do it when it's uncomfortable, when it just when you're sick of it, like you've done too much and it's just getting stressful. It should be challenging, so don't let that dissuade you or, or turn you away or limit you. As much as you can, there is no reason to be afraid. Just do as much as you can and you feel like you are comfortable doing so much. And yeah, Comfortable is probably the wrong word. As much as you can without uh, getting overwhelmed, without breaking. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we have in the top tier. Okay. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help. Of course. Wish everyone a good week, good practice. May you find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sad. Sad.